Steampunk Dollhouse. My name is Blue Stocking, and I will be your librarian and your host for the next hour or so. If you are a returning listener, you have my eternal thanks for continuing to tune in. If this is your first time in the Dollhouse, please come in and have a seat. But also, please be aware that this show is, by necessity, chock-a-block of spoilers, so if that's going to be an issue, I would ask that you turn back now, read the books that we're going to discuss before you continue, and it's okay. I'll be here when you get back. Uh, Now, at this point, uh, usually in the show, uh, I say, so a lot happened this week. Um, But after so many episodes and supplementals and so many things that have happened these weeks, I don't feel like I can say that anymore. Um, It seems like a week with half a dozen weird and shitty things coming out of the administration is officially the new normal. Um, And I think you know that I'm right. Even the fucking weather... At this point, seem to be pissed off. I think Mother Nature is really, really displeased with the rotting potato that's currently in the White House, and she is showing her displeasure in some really awful and extravagant ways. Um, something I wanted to clarify, though, as I was getting all of this ready uh, to record, the reason that I do go into the happenings that are currently um, tearing our country apart at the beginning of each show It's because so much of it directly correlates to everything that we discuss on the show. And I think it's important that we understand how the steampunk books that we've been discussing really do mirror current events and do that thing that I all want you to, I want all of you to see in that current events are really fucked up. And after a while, I think to a certain extent, we stop seeing all of the awful. I think we get tunnel vision a little bit, maybe. Um, And I think our brains can only take so much. So, something like this, the the steampunk that resets and reframes the narrative, and it lets us see all the awful, shiny, and new, and um, maybe helps us to begin constructing a plan of action. Uh, So with that said, let's get on with this week's, well, this last two weeks news, uh, starting with the Dacre repeal. Um, As we all know, um, he's decided to rescind the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, um... That was an Obama administration action that would protect certain undocumented immigrants who arrived here as minors. I would keep them from being deported and allow them to apply for work permits. Um, And this seems like something that just... it, It really does get right to the heart of what American values and ideals are supposed to be. Um, about coming here and making your life better. And what I got from the Brookings Institute, um, and the link will be in the show notes as usual, um, 
there is a massive human cost to this, obviously. Um, and one thing that I don't know if a lot of people have thought about, and I'm sure they have, but the dreamers that, um, in order to be eligible for DACA, they had to register with Homeland Security. Um, so pulling back and canceling the program, repealing it, getting rid of it, um, essentially that means that all of these undocumented, quote-unquote, illegal people um, that are here trying to make their lives better, they are easily identified now. They can be easily targeted, they can easily be rounded up and sent on their way. Um, so, and what the, the Brookings Institute article says is that um, the, the parents were ineligible for protection under DACA. Um, so we may not necessarily know who they are or where they are, but there's their kids that they brought here for a better chance. They can be found. Um, so basically we would be taking these young people and sending them back to a place that they may never have really known. <laughs> you know, and, and, and getting rid of a productive member of American society and sending them someplace that they don't know, they've never been there. Oddly enough, some of them may not even be able to speak the language. Um, I've known a few Hispanic kids who, whose parents brought them here didn't teach them Spanish, which turned out to be somewhat detrimental, but... It's, it's cruel. It's wrong. Um, most of them, they are very young. The Dreamers are young. They're not criminals. Um, they know the U.S. They want education. They want a better life. Um, and sh according to this article, um, over 90% of them are employed. Over 90% of them that are working age are employed. They pay taxes, but they don't, they're not eligible for many benefits. Um, so sending them out is going to, this, according to this article, that could be as much as $2 billion annually in taxes that won't be paid because they'll be gone. Um, and then there's also, there are, you know, administrative and functional costs to sending them back. Um, it's cruel. And according to the numbers that are on this, this Brookings uh, article, it's not economically feasible that this is being done, which means that it is pure cruelty, it is pure xenophobia, it is pure hatred, it is pure racism. Um, and one of the, the arguments that I keep hearing, which I think needs to not be used as much, is, well, they didn't have any choice. Their parents brought them here. Stop throwing the parents under the bus. Um, the parents brought them here for a reason, brought them here for a better life. People don't come, up, come here to suck off the American teat. It's... People want to do better. They want a better life. They want security and safety. And for some reason, they thought America could give that to them. And we are showing them that it can't. So, that's DACA. And actually, that um, that will come into play here in a little bit in the A.J. Hartley books that we're going to cover. Um, the hurricanes! As I'm recording this, Irma is bearing down on Florida. And Jose is waiting in the wings, and I think that there's another one, a Katya, that is hovering right around the corner as well. Um, the one that directly affected my life the most, uh, or the people that I know the most, is of course Harvey, which uh, I discussed um, somewhat in the last episode. Um, but what we know about Harvey here, now finally in the aftermath two weeks later, uh, that was the first major hurricane to make landfall in the U.S. since Wilma in 2005. Um, in a four-day period, uh, many of the areas that were hit received more than 40 inches of rain. Um, there was 
unbelievable flooding. I'm sure we've all seen the videos. We've all seen the video of Harvey Cat swimming through the water with his scornful face. Um, it's considered the wettest tropical cyclone on record in the contiguous U.S., and it inundated hundreds of thousands of homes. Um, the record, or what I read was just yesterday from Wikipedia. I assume it's as up-to-date as possible, but it could be not. But uh, more than 30,000 people have been displaced, 17,000 rescues, at least 71 confirmed deaths. Um, 70 of those were in the United States, one was in Guyana. Um, catastrophic inland flooding is still, there's still problems with flooding, uh, in, in Houston. And if you don't know how big Houston is, Houston is fucking massive. Look it up. It's, it's a big, big place. Um, it's being called, by the FEMA director, it's being called the worst disaster in history, and it could take years, uh, to recover. Economic losses are estimated between 70 to 200 billion. Um, and a lot of them don't have... Insurance. Either they don't have any homeowners insurance at all, or they didn't have flood insurance. Um, like one uh, fellow um, library student who is in the area down there, but because she technically wasn't in the floodplain, she didn't need to have flood insurance, so she didn't have flood insurance, but she watched the water rising up in her front yard until it reached the trees, at which point she started shuffling all of her books up to her second floor. Um, she was lucky the water did not actually get into her house. Um, but as I said, she was supposed to be in a non-flood plate area. She didn't need, quote-unquote, didn't need flood insurance, and it almost came into her home. So that's how bad this was. Now, the Texas Library Association, um, on their website, they do have a recovery resources posted, and they are, of course, going to provide any assistance to libraries damaged by the storm. There are disaster relief funds, um, awards that can be granted, they also have TLA coloring books on sale, $10 for a set of two, and the proceeds will go to the Disaster Relief Fund. Um, and I also have some ALA links uh, in the notes for the American Library Association for um, support and relief that they'll be giving. So you can find that down in the links, uh, because help is still needed and will still be needed for quite some time. Now, the other thing that I wanted to discuss uh, momentarily is to address the tragedy at the, the Clovis Library shooting um, on Monday, August 28th. Um, it's still getting to me. Uh, 4.13 on Monday, August 28th, shots were fired at the Clovis Library. Um, Nathan Jewett, uh, 16 years old, went into the restroom, came out shooting, and... He was taken alive when he, when the police got there, he said, here I am, and gave himself up with that incident. There were multiple gunshot victims, um, two of whom were killed. Wanda Walters was 61, Christina Carter was 48, and they were both library employees. They were killed. Um, four other people were wounded, Howard Jones, 53, Jessica Thrawn, 30, uh, Alexis Molina, who was 20, and Noah Molina, who was 10. Um, yeah. The library was attacked by a 16-year-old kid um, who said that he had planned the attack for a while and wanted to shoot up the school and kill himself, but he ended up at the library because he was angry and he was either going to kill himself or a bunch of people. Um, take that for what you will. Uh, now, the ALA on their website does also, have, um, does also address this as well. And on the ALA website, and I put the links in the notes as well, um, the violence prevention and response links. Um, 
safety and security for public libraries and violence prevention. Um, to take a look at those. Sorry. <laughs> this is America. Gun violence happens every day. But I guess I churches and libraries, man, they're they're sanctuaries. You know, they're they should be sacrosanct, uh, and they're not. So that is a just a real quick sum up of the last two weeks since uh, since we posted. Um, on a lighter note, my only excuse for not posting uh, the supplemental last week. Blame uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost for that one. It's not my fault. <laughs> a 25-year obsession with Twin Peaks finally came to its epic and a really weird culmination Sunday night. And I'm still trying to figure out what exactly happened. Um, but yeah, I first watched Twin Peaks when I was 14 years old. I didn't see the pilot... I didn't even I didn't watch a lot of TV when I was back then. Shockingly, I spent a lot of time in my room reading. Um, but I was walking through the living room. I think it was the second or third episode. I was walking through the living room because my parents were watching it, and I glanced over at the screen, and I don't remember what it was that caught my attention, but something did. I you know what I think it may have been the it may have been one of the morgue scenes with Laura. And knowing that her character, the character she was playing, was only a few years older than me. But I was fascinated. I was hooked in real quick. Um, obsessed. Watched the entire first season. Or watched the first season, you know, from then on. Uh, when The Secret Diary was released, I bought The Secret Diary. And disturbing and weird and fascinating to me. And then watched the full second season. I think I cried when I knew it wasn't going to be renewed. And uh, watched Fire Walk with me with my parents. Now, if that isn't weird, I don't know what it was. I went and saw that with my parents. That was really weird and awkward. And then that was it. And I would scan, the, you know, back then, the, the, the young, brand new, fresh websites and marveling over it. And then Bright Hope of Hope, the show came back. And... Now I'm still trying to figure out what happened, so I'll probably watch the whole thing again. But so that's my entire weekend was taken up with rewatching the, the, the whole season again from beginning to end, and the Firewalk with the movie again because it was so important to the show, and eating cherry pie and drinking a lot of coffee. So that was the last two weeks in library land. Um, I guess that is that, and we are ready to move on to this week's episode with A.J. Hartley's Alternative Detective series. So, if everybody has wiped their tears away and we can step back for just a second, let's talk. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you, as always, by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week, I'm recommending Steeplejack, book one of the Alternative Detective series by A.J. Hartley. Narrated in a strong and lovely and very powerful voice by Noma Dubazwani, who herself recently won an Olivier Award for her turn as Hermione Granger in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. This audiobook is amazing, and it will keep you clinging to the parapets and parkouring your way through Barcelona right alongside Anglet. So... Visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod 
to download Steeplejack or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. All right, literary listeners. Let's get started with A.J. Hartley's Alternative Detective series. Uh, Currently, at this point, this series consists of only two books. I do believe a third is on the way. Uh, The first one was called Steeplejack. The second is called Firebrand. Um, uh, Steeplejack, just to clarify that one, um, Steeplejack is like a chimney sweep times 9,000. They do repair work. They do really dangerous... um, Chimney top repair work, fixing roofs, fixing chimneys, remortaring, cleaning, um, all sorts of dangerous and unhealthy things, um, which requires a lot of manual dexterity and quite a bit of um, grace because of what they're doing. So that is what a steeplejack is, and that is what the main character, Anglet Suntanga, is. Um, now, within this book, we come across the Lani, um, or the brown people. That's what Anglet is, and uh, from what I understand, it, it's co- it correlates to um, East Indian, because um, the book is set in an alternative world, but it does it does correlate to our world. And then there is the Mawani, um, or the black people, that uh, correlates to South African. And then there was the white, or the Feldeslanders, uh, they speak Feldish. I think they correlate to English or Dutch, possibly, um, maybe something of both. And then we'll also run across the Grappoli, which seemed to me to be Italian or Spanish. The Grappoli were also not Feldsland. They were not the white people, but they weren't brown or black either. So, But with the names that were given um, and the descriptions of them, like I said, I think Italian or Spanish or maybe a, something of both. Uh, one thing that I do want to cover... Uh, because of the way, the way the book works, or how the story goes, Anglet and the other Lani people are in this um, place called Barcelona, uh, this South African type um, area. They are not from there. Um, they came in not as refugees, though. Um, but what I did, I looked it up, and this is actually based off of an actual um, situation called there was an Indian diaspora in Southeast Africa. Uh, that in the 19th century, there's about 3 million people of Indian origin, and they arrived in the late 19th century as British indentured laborers, um, many of them to work on the Kenya-Uganda Railway, and others had arrived earlier um, as traders um, over the sea. So the British Empire, um, these laborers, which were referred to as coolies, um, not a nice term anymore, it's, it's, a, it's a derogatory term, they were indentured laborers. Um, the conditions were, were somewhat close to slavery. They were indentured, but it still it was not good work. It was it was rough work. It was a bad system, um, and it started from the article that I read. This this began somewhere in 1834 in Mauritius, I think is how you say it. I'm not sure. Um, after slavery, after the British Empire abolished slavery, they did this um, indentured labor to replace the slaves. The laborers were only a little bit better off than the slaves had been, and they were supposed to receive minimum wages or some kind of payout or land or money for a return passage, um, and they could not be sold, bought and sold um, like slaves were. Now, there were originally 32,000 contracted laborers, 
after the end of the service, about 6,700 stayed to work as what are called dequalas. I think I'm saying that correctly. Um, artisans, traders, clerks, and lower-level administrators. They were excluded from the middle and the higher, the senior ranks of the government, and from farming. So many of them became um, commercial middlemen. They became professionals, doctors, lawyers. And it was actually these Dequalas that moved into the new colonial areas. Um, and the, the article said even before that they had followed Arab trading routes inland. Um, so they had been there for a while. And that is what Steeplejack, um, I believe, is based on, is this Indian diaspora. Um, Anglet Sutonga is a Steeplejack, um, a rare female steeplejack. She's a teenager. Uh, she comes from her area where the Lani people are centered is called the drowning. Uh, it's, it's not high class. It's, it's impoverished. Uh, it's huts, it's shacks, it's families with many, many children and not enough food. Um, but she leaves. Now, Anglet has, Anglet is her Anglet is the youngest. She has a sister named Robbie who is older than her, and then there was a sister, Vestris, who is older than uh, than the both of them. She's the oldest sister. The father had died uh, within the last few years. The mother had died giving birth to Anglet. And in this culture, um, daughters are considered not as valuable as sons. Um, we've seen that before, definitely. Uh, to the point where the third daughter is considered a curse and any daughters thereafter are not kept. Uh, mothers are not allowed to keep any daughters after the third, which will become um, a key point in this when um, Anglet's sister, Robbie, gives birth to her fourth daughter uh, and Anglet decides she's going to take care of it, which in the end will actually come out okay, but right at the beginning, it, it doesn't go well when a um, 16, 17-year-old you know, female steeplejack who is inadvertently trying to solve a crime is also trying to take care of a baby. So um, what's happening is there is a situation going on between Barsalem, um, which is largely controlled by the whites now, with Alani and Moeni working as servants and um, laborers. But... The neighboring nation of Grappoli, um, they're constantly warring with Grappoli. Now, within these books, there is an item called Luxorite. Obviously, it's not real. Uh, it's like diamond, but it shines. Literally, it literally exudes light, uh, different forms of light. Some of them are very bright white, some are blue, some have different colors. Um, and the light gets warmer and softer as the Luxorite piece ages. Um, and Luxorite can be cut down into small pieces, and it says in some of them where the Luxorite is so pure and so bright that even just a tiny grain of it is enough to light a, you know, to, to replicate the light of a candle. Um, but the Luxorite, there was only a, a finite amount of it. So the Luxorite dealers in town, actually, they're all familiar with just about every single piece of Luxorite that passes through. But there's a large beacon in the middle of Barcelona. It lights up the entire sky, and it is a huge chunk of Luxorite, and it gets stolen. Uh, and Anglet discovers the th or the theft is discovered at the same time that Anglet discovers um, the body of her new apprentice Barrett, um, who she hadn't even actually met yet. She was going to meet him that night for the first time and take him on as an apprentice, and he was killed. Um, and Anglet, through different means, ends up stumbling across a man named Willinghouse who is a minor politician and 
Willinghouse hires Anglet to quietly find out who did this because the theft of the beacon is, is much larger than just the theft of some Luxorite. If it was the grapply, then it could start a war. If it's the grapply trying to be, you know, someone trying to frame the grapply, it could start a war. Um, and Anglet has access to places that Willinghouse can't necessarily go. Uh, so she agrees to investigate because she wants to find justice for Barrett and you know, this little boy who was, who was killed as a means of a larger end. Uh, she does come in contact with Willinghouse's sister, Daria, and in connecting with Willinghouse and his sister, she learns that they are actually a quarter Lonnie, so they are not quite as high a society as they appear to be either, uh, because that one quarter does make a difference. Uh, and Anglet at the time, had been working for a man named Morlack, another Lonnie, a bad, bad man. He ran the crew of Steeplejacks. And being the only girl, she had obviously some some battles to fight um, to keep herself safe. And she pisses off Morlack. He comes after her. She wounds him grievously, but not fatally. Takes off. And so she's got to start hiding, but she's also got this baby, this tiny newborn baby she's trying to take care of. She stumbles across a young Moeni man, Moeni man um, out near the drowning who will become very close to her. But all this time, she's trying to figure out who stole the Luxorite, what the story is, and why Barrett died, why her little apprentice died. Um, she makes a lot of interesting connections along the way and becomes an accidental detective. Um, it's, it's The steampunk is there um, with the, the machinery, you know, the carriages, the steam-powered machines, but it's also got a very neo-noir quality to it, a very, you know... 1940s, 30s, 40s detective thriller quality to it in the the cloak and dagger, you know, the the chase and her, you know, trying to infiltrate different places. She dresses up, you know, Daria dresses her up as a maid so they can infiltrate a jewelry or a a Luxorite dealer and get more information. Um, It's all very, very exciting. And what Anglette is going to come to find out is that her sister... Her beloved older sister Vestris, who was the shining light, Vestris, who who made, who did well for herself. She got out of the drowning to the point where whenever Vestris would come back to visit, she was like a queen uh, appearing in the drowning. Unglet will learn that her sister is actually lovers of uh, another uh, middle level um, white man, but they in the end are. Um, at the heart of the theft and the heart of everything that's going on. But they had found a vein of what looked to be Luxorite, but it's not. It's something radioactive, and it causes a problem. And so her sister will <laughs> her sister will become something else due to um, exposure to this not Luxorite. But in the end, Anglet will solve the crime. Uh, and she's still Anglet. The girl from the drowning. She's no longer a steeplejack. Um, she can't be in the gangs anymore, but Morlack is arrested. And she has somewhat of a repaired relationship with her sister, Robbie, but not much better. And she continues to work for Willinghouse. And then Firebrand, um, it's about three months later, and um, the city of Barcelona, there is... <laughs> I don't know when A.J. Hartley wrote this, um, but the city of Barcelona is 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 struggling right now. There are far right white supremacists, um, who are taking, who are gaining ground in the political situation. There are refugees. 
being washed up in Barcelona um, and being used and abused, as is too often the case. And there are many people with no work um, and very few options. And so there are a set of plans, weapon plans, that are stolen, and Willinghouse has uh, Anglet look into it um, in her new job as a detective. She's making money now. She has her own place to live. Uh, she's not poor anymore, but like she says, and this is something that I can absolutely attest to, you always remember being poor. You will never forget it. It doesn't how much money you have or how good your situation has gotten. You always remember being poor. Uh, so there are calls for racial purity going on. Um, so Anglet has to uh, infiltrate a white settlement as uh, going in as a foreign princess. Um, it's the, the He went with the ugly duckling to a swan thing, but after she did what she needed to do, she went right back to her, her steeplejack garb. She didn't like being the princess. It wasn't her. She didn't want it. So he does turn things on its head a little bit with that. Um, and she's cool. I like Anglet. But what it turns out, um, there's a big conspiracy, um, as you'll have in these kind of novels, with um, a weapon at its head. So the, the first one didn't really cover, it, the, it was the Luxorite. It wasn't about the technology so much. This one, it's about the technology that we like to talk about and what the technology can do. And the, um, the eponymous firebrand, um, <laughs> a flame-spewing tool for eradicating people uh, is basically um, what's been created. I, I got the idea that they're tanks. The, the, the firebrand is like a, a turret type thing that's going to be mounted on what is essentially a tank um, so it can mow people down. So we've got the technology here mowing over the people, but Anglet saves the day. She figures it all out. But unfortunately, the people who headed this, they were all relatively insulated to a certain extent, so they'll all come out on top, including um, the man's name is Richter, the white supremacist. Um, so that obviously sets us up for the third book, um, but Anglet is, she's a cool character. She's clever. She's smart. Um, she's graceful, but not too graceful. <laughs> you know, she's a teenage girl um, with with some things going on, trying to work through family issues and do the right thing um, for the people that she cares about. And, you know, learning how to move among these all these different people. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's really cool. So that is... Uh, my usual um, half-ass summary. <laughs> so that's Steeplejack and Firebrand. Uh, that's the first two books. And there's a whole, there's, there's a good amount to unpack there. And, you know, I love that. So we are going to take a momentary break here. We are going to hear from another sponsor. Hear a little bit of lovely, lovely music. And then we will move on and unpack these two books and the issues that A.J. Hartley has placed before us. We'll be right back. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is also sponsored by the Judgment Night Radio Hour. Are you a fan of audio drama? Do you enjoy classic pulp fiction in the style of Dashiell Hammett, macabre southern gothic stories of the likes of Cormac McCarthy, or stirring drama reminiscent of August Wilson? Then tune in to the Judgment Night Radio Hour. The Judgment Night Radio Hour is an audio drama and fiction anthology podcast featuring lurid, rousing tales of existential angst, metaphysical mayhem, spiritual crisis, sin, repentance, redemption, justice, and judgment. Presented in the style of an old AM gospel radio broadcast, 
The series is hosted and narrated by the ominous fire of brimstone preacher Reverend Reginald Cephas Weaver III, who gives soul-stirring sermons in the form of Southern Gothic, neo-noir dramas, thrillers, and mysteries. Imagine if Flannery O'Connor directed The Twilight Zone with an all-black cast. This sinister series of short stories and radio plays can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more, follow their Twitter at jnightradio, visit their website on www.judgmentnightradio.com, or like its Facebook page at Judgment Night Radio. Turn or burn, literary listeners, but don't turn that dial. Gets into the pavement. His 
literary listeners that was daisy may with the miss and the man and if you would like to hear more music of a steampunk variety steampunk adjacent in the neighborhood of i would highly recommend clockwork cabaret they are gearing up to get started again after their summer hiatus you can find them on itunes or any podcaster podcatcher at the clockwork cabaret and they're also available at clockworkcabaret.com and I also highly, highly recommend the Judge Night Radio Hour. Not even kidding. I listen to it myself. I love it. It's amazing. And Reverend Weaver has quite the voice. So tune into that one as well. And now, on with the show. Um, clearly, I mean, obviously from the summary, it's clear that um, Hartley's book pulls in the, the usual suspects. Um, that we've come to expect from the books that I cover, um, especially the, the colonialism and the racism, uh, because the the land was belonged to the Moeni. The Moeni are the ones that were indigenous to the land, um, but the Feldeslanders came in, and the Lani were brought into work, um, and so more and more land was taken from the Moeni. The Moeni, the city blacks can vote. But it doesn't really count for much. Um, but the Lani were were never slaves. Um, what Anglet says is this is um, from the book, uh, page twenty five and twenty six. She says um, they were never slaves and believed they had settled in Felda's land by choice, keeping to themselves as the Northerners conquered, bought, and absorbed more and more of the land from the native blacks. By the time the Lani looked up from their cooking fires to find out that they had turned into a squalid and itinerant people living peasant lives, it was too late. So they they labored under the idea that they came there because they wanted to, um, but in the end, they're no better off than the, the indigenous Moeni. Everyone is under the thumb of the Feldeslanders, um, and it's not good. Now, uh... This book is actually mentioned by name in one of my favorite sources, uh, the Roger Whitson book, The Steampunk of the 19th Century Digital Humanities. He does discuss uh, steeplejack specifically uh, in the book, and what he says is that 
the novel combines representations of the blatant urban racism of the 19th century with those of a subtler bureaucratic racism found in the 20th and 21st century. And by appealing to an alternate world, Hartley is able to explore the violence of racism and colonialism while expanding the cultural relevance of steampunk beyond the white men who have traditionally been seen as the protagonists of history, um, which is what we love here at the Steampunk Dollhouse, is uh, moving outwards from that focus on the white men and bringing other people into the, into the fray, bringing other people into the story and seeing um, what tales they have to tell. So, the, like I said, the issues that we see, the colonialism, the racism... Um, and it's everywhere. Um, Anglet in the second book, in Firebrand, she goes to uh, Parliament to watch um, one of the sessions taking place in Parliament, um, which is when I think she first really becomes aware of Richter and his white supremacy. Um, but the Parliament House is segregated uh, between whites and coloreds, and then even the, the colored men and women get separated from there. Um, but she hears Richter speaking of... You know, speak the white supremacists speaking about um, the Lani and the Maweni and the taking of jobs and the bringing of drugs and the thieving, um, which obviously sounds very much like something we've all been hearing lately. Um, they're not called bad hombres, but um, the idea is there. And we've got um, aggressive white constables um that cause some problems as well um it's it's there's a lot of like i said i don't know when exactly he wrote this it came out this year so i'm guessing it was written sometime last summer before everything really blew up um i mean it's been getting worse and worse but he kind of called it on some of these um and the party that um is causing the the the, the problems the party that is, is raising the white supremacy issue um is called the Heritage Party. They have, um, she notices, Anglette notices, notices that their, their suits, their outfits, they're all very uniform-like, um, and the description of them is very thinly veiled, allusion to U- to uh, SS uniforms, and their emblem, it's, uh, it's black and red and silver, it's a fist, a clenched fist holding a lightning bolt. Um, in my head, I picture that blocky, um, Propaganda, the blocky early century, or turn of the 19th century propaganda, or 20th century. But they are, um, the Heritage Party is talking about how there have been violent race riots by the Lani and the Moeni, um, and wants to basically take everyone who is not of pure white ancestry and put them outside the city walls and over onto the other side of the river, which would actually push them out of the, the I think it said a two-mile ratio, um, where there are factories, and so those factories would actually be without labor um, if they can't even get into the city to work. So again, we're pushing, <laughs> we're pushing the brown people out which is going to leave a lot of work left behind that a lot of white people may not want to do. Um, but, you know, deal with that later. And in this situation, the, the Heritage Party um, forms a, a loose sort of alliance with the Grappoli, sees them as a natural ally, um, because they are white. They're definitely not Lonnie, and they're not Mwenny. Um They may be not quite as white as the Feldeslanders, but, you know good enough to form an alliance with um and it's it's horrible it's 
<laughs> these people are so awful and it's we we've heard it we heard it this summer we keep hearing it we hear you know we we hear it on the tv we hear it from sessions with the the DACA being repealed we hear it all over the place and there was one one line that I thought was interesting uh, or not line but one one section that I thought was interesting um when Anglet is talking to um Inspector Andrews, um, he's a police officer. He's the one that, that has been working with her in Willinghouse. He's a good man, um, a white officer. But she says to him, then those people, the ones who see his hate-mongering for what it is, have a responsibility to stand publicly against him, don't you think? And Andrews says, well, it's complicated, isn't it? People are afraid of alienating their neighbors, their friends and family, being considered a, a traitor to your own kind. Um, and I wonder how much of what we see nowadays is all of the people are racist douchebags or the racist douchebags are the loudest and people are afraid to, to speak up, uh, and to stand against them and to, you know, to, to say this is, this is wrong. Um, and even though Anglet and Andrews and Willinghouse managed to, to figure out what's going on, they managed to get the refugees, because the refugees are being, um, basically what's happening, happening is smugglers are being paid to bring refugees to the country, um, but then it gets caught, and so one of the, the men involved in these plots is getting paid to ship them back out, so it's, it's just, it's a big, horrible, vicious cycle of refugees in, refugees out, and we see it all the time with coyotes bringing, you know, people from across the border from Central and South America and then ice rounds them up and ships them back out. Um, it's it's over and over and over again. It doesn't stop. It won't stop because people want to find a better life. It will always happen because people will run from the things that make their lives terrible. It's who we are as people, and yet we blame them for trying to find something better. But what Anglette says near the end, um, when she finds out what's going to happen or what's not going to happen to most of the conspirators, and she says... There would be no total victories, not for people like them, or for that matter, people like me. Not for some time yet, but maybe one day, when the partial victories were pooled, we would find that we had done enough to make something more complete, at least possible. And I feel like maybe that's what we can hope for right now, to at least a partial victory and take all those partial victories and we will have something better, we will have something bigger. And um, there's a couple other things about this, especially as far as, far as this relates to the women. Um, I was really fascinated with how A.J. Hartley handled it because he is a white man and he is writing about um, ostensibly an East Indian teenage girl, a young woman. And there are issues on occasion with men writing about young women. Um, they They tend to go off in a weird direction sometimes and they tend to have right female characters that are, are, are weirdly obsessed with their own bodies and their own sexuality. And while that, you know, teenagers do have a certain fascination with their own bodies, it's not quite the way it's written out in the books. Um, so he handled it, I thought, really, really well. Um, there is, for one thing, there are some very, very strong female relationships uh, in the book, and friendships that actually passed the Bechtel test. So I, I was impressed by that, especially uh, with Anglette and her friend um, Serena, who is a Mwenny girl 
when Anglette first meets her, she is uh, a newspaper girl. She's selling the newspapers. And Anglette runs across her, and she starts to get some information from Serena whenever she, you know, she, she sees her. And it becomes clear that Serena is special. Um, she's got a photographic memory, but it's almost like she's downloading, you know, whenever Anglette asks her a question, and she kind of stops, cocks her head, thinks, and then the information comes out of her like it's... You know, it's it's blind. It's it's ball. What is what's the word I'm looking for? There's no inflection. She just pours the information out like a computer. You know, spitting out a return, um, and she actually becomes quite um, invaluable to Anglet. And because of Anglet going to Serena for help and feeding her information about the situations and the things that are taking place in the city, uh, Serena is actually able to leverage that into a job herself as a reporter. Um, she and, and when Anglet goes to visit her in Firebrand at the newspaper office, and how Serena is the only um, black girl in there among all these, you know, white reporter, white male reporters, but she's holding her own and she's she's doing a good job. Anglet gives her the scoops, and you know she she gets up there, and and they they are very very strong. They work well together. Um, it was just a nice valid, viable female friendship. There was, you know, they didn't talk about boys. And actually, that's the other thing. Well, and there's also, um, I'll get to the boys in a second, but uh, she also ends up oddly forming a, a very close friendship with Willinghouse's sister, Daria, who I believe Daria is only a little bit older than Anglette. Um, she is a quarter Lonnie, but she looks white. She she passes. Um, but she's she's very, when we first meet her, she's very stuck up. She's very snobby. Um, very much the socialite, and it becomes clear over the course of their relationship that Daria really actually largely despises these people that she socializes with, but this is the world that she knows. Um, but there is a core of steel in Daria, just like there is in Anglette and like there is in Serena um, and many of the other women that we meet. Um, that is going to serve her well, and she ends up helping... Um, Anglet quite a bit. They take her at Willinghouse and Daria take her out to their grandmother, who is who provided the Lonnie blood, and she will train Anglet in how to be better uh, at her job. And like I said before, there was the scene, the scene with the uh, you know the, the transformation into a, an Astilian princess, um, so that she can infiltrate a society gathering, and she pulls it off, but she doesn't like it. She's not happy with the layers of you know sorry wrapped around her and the. The bindi and the jewelry and the, the paint and the veils and she hates it and she wants out of it and she gets out of it as soon as possible because um, that's not her thing that's not her jam she's not a princess she's not a lady she's anglet she's a detective she's a former steeplejack she's a badass and she's beautiful she is beautiful as she is she doesn't need to be transformed um, and it almost as far as the the romance goes, there's Willinghouse seems to be she's maybe somewhat fascinated with him or a little interested in him. Um, there seems to be a bit of a flirtation with her and Daria. Um, everything between her and Serena is seems to be relatively uh, platonic. There's nothing there, but there's also uh, a young man, the young Mawenny man that she had met named Menanga, and he is just 
kind. He is so kind. She, she'll find out that he's a, somewhat of an ambassador type person. Um, he goes out. He speaks very good. Feldish, he's, he's very good with people. Um, he tries to help her out. When he first runs across her and she's got the baby, because what happens is her sister, and this is the other issue, a large, the, the, a large pile of the misogyny that all of the women deal with, but the Lonnie women we learn the most about, um, like I said, the third daughter is considered a curse. And so um, Anglet is already kind of an outcast as far as the drowning goes. Vestris left. Robbie got married and had babies, and Anglet would end up leaving to go become a steeplejack, and so she ends up being considered an outsider by the rest of the drowning. She's not really Lonnie, is what they tell her, but she comes back when her sister's having her babies, and so she comes back for the fourth baby, and we find out it's a girl, and the mean uh, midwife is going to take the baby and give her to the sisters of the Pankaris sisters, which is uh, nuns, a uh, children's home run by nuns, and Anglet doesn't agree with it. Um, she doesn't want this to happen. So she agrees. She says she'll take the baby, and she takes a blood oath, and they scar her cheeks. Um, she doesn't want them to, to cut her hands because her hands are her work. Um, so she takes the blood oath. She takes the baby. Uh, she ends up running across Menega, uh, the hunter of the Nabizu, and <laughs> he's so sweet. And he, he wants to help her because he, he realizes she's got this baby, and he ends up coming back to her with um, Nabizu milk and a, a little uh, rubber nipple um, that's used to feed the baby uh, animals that can't, you know, that, that need to be fed. And he teaches her how to put it on the, the bottle, the milk for the baby, which she's named Kala. Um, and it goes along okay for a while, but it's just, it's, it's, it's clear that her life is going to get the baby killed. So she ends up, eventually she will take her to Pancaris, but it all works out towards the end of the first book. Um, she actually gets Kala back and gives her back to Robbie, and then they both declare to the midwife and everyone else in the drowning that Robbie will be keeping her baby. She will be keeping her fourth daughter. And on the sly, Anglet is going to give her sister money um, to help raise this, this fourth child. But Anglet is also no longer really allowed in the drowning. Um, they don't want her there. Uh, she comes and she goes. She doesn't stay. But in the course of her investigation, uh, in the second book largely, um, she runs across um, the, the Mwenni and the Lani factory workers. Um, it's really the only work outside of sex work that's available for especially the Mwenni women. Um, and she'll meet someone named Bertha who speaks very loud because she's used to working in a textile factory um, with clanging machines. But it turns out that Bertha was actually trained to be a teacher so she'll bring her out to the drowning in the end and uh, gets Willinghouse to supply some money to pay Bertha so she can teach the children in the drowning. And it's wonderful. She's she's loud and booming, but she's so kind. And during the course of all this, there are um, there's a, a big shipment of refugees that uh, Angelette comes across. And the refugees, by the time she gets to Willinghouse and Andrews and gets them and goes back to the warehouse, they're gone. The boat's been cleaned out. So she decides she's going to find them because there's a lot of children in there. She wants to find them. She wants to help them. And that's when she first really interacts with Bertha um, and finds out that she's seen where the children went. She tracks them down. She goes to find Menanga, and he helps her track them down to an old Moeni temple. Um, it's considered a bad place. Well, not a bad place, but it's haunted. Um, and there's a a creature running around. Uh, it's like a lion-like creature. 
um, that they have to outrun. They find the children, and what happens is they manage to all climb up onto the top of the temple to get out of the way of this cat creature, um, and they light a fire up there, ostensibly to keep the creature away from them. Um, but because the temple is right on the other side of the river from the drowning, her sister sees the fire lights that fire light up, and sends her husband Sinchin, who is usually a, a lazy, not a good dude. He doesn't support his family. But Robbie rouses Sinchin and uh, some of his his friends. They take their boats. They go across the river, um, and they save all of these children. Uh, that Anglet and I oh know I'm going to cry again. These damn books keep making me cry. Um, that Anglet and Menanga found a couple of young women, uh, mostly children, all thin, ragged, um, close to death. You know, but Sinchin just shows up. He says, "How many?" She tells him. He says, "Okay, well." You need to make two trips. We'll bring an extra boat. They pile them all in, take them all back to the drowning. Um, Anglet's little friend, Tanish, shows up. Tanish has been in the, both books. He kind of trails her around. He's her little hummingbird. Um, he shows up with Bertha. And, and when he shows up with Bertha, Bertha booms out that they heard what happened and they're here to help. And Anglet starts crying. Uh, because she says, for once, the world turned out to be the way I had always hoped. And I wish we could see more of that. I think we did see some of that um, the last few weeks with Harvey. I uh, hope we'll see more of it in Florida after that takes its path. Because, um, you know, we have things like <laughs> cops in Florida, Polk County sheriffs in Florida posting on Twitter that if you have a warrant and you turn up at the shelter, you'll be arrested and taken to jail. Um, not cool. Uh, you know, how many people are going to die because they had a minor warrant? <laughs> For whatever reason, and I'm not going to judge. Um, people get arrested for all sorts of reasons, and it's not always good reasons. It's always true reasons. But even so, <laughs> if you have a warrant for weed, you don't deserve, you know that in the middle of everything else. Um, so sometimes the world turns out the way we hoped. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. But I wish it didn't take hurricanes barreling down on top of us one right after the other to make us discover our compassion for each other. Um, it shouldn't be that way. We should be helping each other out all the time. We should have compassion for each other all the time. We are all humans. We are all going through shit. We all, uh, we've said this before. I've talked about it before. We all have stories. We all have things that we're dealing with. And it shouldn't take great catastrophe to make us see each other as humans. Um, but it does. It, too often it does. So, you know, we have this happy moment in Firebrand um, when everybody... But... <laughs> It's also the people that help in the drowning. It's the Lani and the Moeni. Um, I mean, Willinghouse gives money. But the white people aren't pouring into the drowning to help these refugee children. Um, now, although um, at the end of the book, uh, near the end of the book, one of the, the final confrontation, um, when we see the firebrand in action, and there are other uh, another group of refugees that are on a boat being about to be shipped out, and one of the white women who was involved in it, Constance, um, she didn't know everything. I don't think everybody knew all the pieces of what was happening, and Constance didn't know about the refugees. She didn't know about the children in the boat being shipped back out. 
And so she actually goes to uh, save them. And so when the white supremacist bully boy, uh, Richter's bully boy, uh, Barrington Smythe, when he snaps out and starts firing the, the gun, she manages to get the kids out of there with Anglet's help and gets them to safety. So she didn't know everything. She thought she was actually helping um, those that were fighting back against the grapply. So there were a few that did help, but largely it was efforts by the Moeni and the Lani to save their own lives and to help each other um, and to come together. And I, I, there's no indication of what the third... I assume there's going to be a third book, like I said, because the, the white supremacist leader, Richter, you know, he got, he's going to get off. He's not going to get in any trouble, and he's going to keep building up support and building up support and building up support. And I can only assume that H.A. Hartley is taking a lot of inspiration from the, the horrible, horrible shit that is happening in this country right now. Um, he's got a wealth of material. He really does. Um, but they were good. Um, like I said, there was almost no romance, which, again, I'm not against that, but I, I think I kind of got sidetracked on that. She's got feelings for Menenga. Um, Unglad has feelings for Menenga. That's obvious. But she also seems to have a, a spark of a feeling for Willinghouse. Um, and there's something with her and Daria. And again, she's, she's a teenager, so that's, you know, everyone catches your eye because you don't know what you want. You don't know who you are. But Daria does make the comment at the end when her and, and Anglet are walking through the garden and she tells her she's going to have to eventually choose between her and her brother. Um, I thought that was interesting. So we'll see where that goes. But there's, it seems like there's something there. So that's that was a, that was a nice twisty turn. Um, oh, and the other thing that we found out, this, this, <laughs> there's apparently a creature that's referred to as the gargoyle by the steeplejacks. It's, it's like Springheel Jack. It's a it's a, an urban legend, you know. It's supposed to be just a creature that's not real, but there actually is a creature running around in Barcelona at night now, killing bad people, um, and it's hairless and weird and gross, and it's vestrous. It's Anglet's beautiful sister. Uh, she didn't die at the end of Steeplejack like we thought. She managed to get away through the caves, but it was assumed that the radiation was going to kill her. Her hair was already falling out at that point. She was already sick, so we thought she was going to die. But she didn't die. Um, she's a gargoyle now. She goes around, and she <laughs> she is nightmare vigilante justice. Um, she saved her sister's life. She kills Barrington Smythe, and she's gone again. She's she's looking for redemption. And that's when we also find out that the old woman that trained Anglet, uh, Willinghouse's grandmother, um, she trained Vestris as well, but we don't know all the details of that yet. Um, again, I'm hoping we'll find out in the next book. But... That is Firebrand and Steeplejack. Um, they were they were really good. Like I said, I, I was really pleasantly surprised uh, by the way that Anglet was written. Uh, I had my doubts uh, when I first got it. You know, um, been reading for a long time, read a lot of books, a lot of female characters written by men, and it's never quite right. But he did a really good job. Um, he made you feel for her. He made you care about her. Uh, about the situation, and again, we see refugees are, are refugees, the, the you know, the, the, the dreamer kids, all these people that are coming to this country that's supposed to be better, it's supposed to be better than what they left, it's supposed to be hope, it's supposed to be a future, uh, an opportunity, a chance to <clears throat> build something for yourself and make a life, and we want to send them away, we don't want them here. Um, 
or we say that we don't want them here, and we'll see what happens when they're gone, and there are a whole lot of jobs that a whole lot of people don't want to do. But it's about compassion. It's about caring about each other. You know, compassion doesn't hurt you. Being kind to other people doesn't hurt you. And the the kinder you are to people, the more that you give to people, the better and better it feels. It's a high. It's an endorphin high. You feel better. You want to help more people, but you've got to find a starting point. You've got to get in there. You've got to crack that open, whatever it is that's holding you back, and help people. Because it could be you. <laughs> we, we could all be fleeing this country in the next few years, either north or south. And I don't think Justin Trudeau is going to be standing on the Canadian border with his arms wide open when we all are fleeing from Trump. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll see. But do something kind for somebody. Um, look in the show notes. Take a look at all the different uh, uh, hurricane relief options. Now, a lot of these, the, the ones that I have, they are not Texas-specific, except for the uh, the United Way of Greater Houston. Um, but the others, AmeriCares, the TLA Disaster Relief, the Humane Society, because there are a lot of animals that are going to be displaced. There's already a lot in Texas that are displaced. There's going to be a lot more, uh, because not all shelters, most shelters don't take animals. So people have to make a choice. Um, I know what my choice would be. I will strap myself down and hold on to my cats. Um, but people have to make a choice. And, you know, either way they choose, you can't fault them, you can't blame them. But there's a lot of animals that need, that need help right now. Um... There's also NPR. Um, I included the NPR link to their webpage, where they have a real comprehensive list of organizations. Because there's a lot of people that are going to need a lot more people that are going to need, be needing help um, after the next few days pass. I, I haven't checked the news yet. I've been here talking to you guys, so I don't know if Irma's hit yet, but she's coming, uh, and it's going to be ugly. And then also, again, I have the violence prevention, uh, ALA violence prevention links in there. Um, so take a look at those. Uh, go listen to Judgment Night Radio, Radio Hour. Pull up some Clockwork Cabaret. Um, and see what you can do to help some people. It feels good. Trust me. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion truly matters, and it does have an impact on how many people can find us. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for Beyond South Sea, or Why Decolonial Determination is Steampunk as Shit, with the anthology The Sea is Ours, Tales from Steampunk Southeast Asia, edited by Jamie Goh and Joyce Chung. Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0, international license. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, who will soon be in a cargo container and on her way to Australia. Our intro music is Baby, I'm Not Your Lady by Sing and Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knicker Bacher Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. 
All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Concerned about xenophobic hysteria that seems to be infecting every corner of society? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. Want to help keep the library generators fueled? Visit our support page at spdhpod.com. Any contributions you can give will be amazing and sincerely appreciated and will enable us to begin making kick-ass Bunker Buster merchandise as soon as possible. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out. Hayloft. Quite. Time.